Proverbs 22, starting at verse 28. Yeah, that lamp will twist on. It clicks a couple times, so it's kind of like dim, middle, bright. Keep going. One more. There you go. So we will probably, depending on how our discussion goes, just get through uh, chapter 3, verse 3. But we could go a little further if y'all would, uh, if you'd like. 22-28. I'll just read these. Um, it says, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean or ordinary men. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee. Put a knife to thy throat. If thou be a man given to appetite, be not desirous of his dainties or his delicacies, for they are deceitful meat. Amen. And then if you look at verse uh, 10 and 11 of chapter 23, Remove not the old landmark, enter not into the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is mighty. He shall plead their cause with thee. And you see how similar that is to verse 28 kind of brings in another idea in the second verse, but it's it's almost a exact quotation of, of the first. But anyway, um, one of the overarching themes of uh, um, this section, and I draw in a word from 23.2, is basically the idea of, of appetite or, or lusts even. Um, because in verse 28, a certain type of lust or appetite is involved that would make you want to move the ancient landmark. Um, in verse 29, a, a proper appetite towards work is involved, and then a, uh, a uh, appetite in verses 1, 2, and 3 in chapter 23, an appetite that lacks sobriety is kind of accented. Uh, you could you know, if you study these verses close enough, you could probably draw another theme as well. But I, we could at least kind of uh, center our minds around those things. As you heard me read, as I normally do, I read from the King James, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Um, the NIV says, Do not move an ancient, ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. New King James, do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. And then uh, a newer commentary I got is uh, from Philip Melanchthon. He was uh, kind of the closest companion of Martin Luther during the German Reformation. Um, there, a, a new English printing of his commentary, which is not on every verse, uh, but it's a commentary on Proverbs. He says, 
do not surpass ancient ancient boundaries. I cannot say the word ancient tonight. I've said ancient both times. Do not surpass ancient boundaries that your fathers have set. Do not surpass rather than do not move or do not remove. So he's bringing in another idea there. And as I said, uh, verse, 23, uh, verse 10 and 11 of chapter 23 bring in this same idea as well. Uh, maybe you remember as uh, the Lord brings his people into the promised land, he sets up boundaries. Um, in Numbers chapter 34, I can just give you a summary of that chapter. Uh, the Lord divides Canaan. He states in verse 3 that there's going to be a southern border. In verse 6, there's going to be a western border. In verse 7, there's going to be a northern border. And in verse 10, there's going to be an eastern border. Moses would be assisted by Eleazar the priest and Joshua. Yes, that Joshua. Uh, that's mentioned in verse 16. And beneath Moses and then Eleazar and Joshua would be one single leader from each tribe. <coughs> from each tribe to help them divide the land, right? So that's just over the land of Canaan. That's Numbers uh, 34, the division of the promised land, borders on north, south, east, and west, and then within that, borders for each tribe, Numbers 34. But you also have in Deuteronomy 32, uh, verse 8, it's just one verse there, you can flip over you like, Chronologically, Deuteronomy 32 is not uh, just after numbers in your Bible, but it is historically as well. It's right, the end of Deuteronomy is right at the death of Moses. And uh, Deuteronomy 32 is uh, Moses' song, one of them. You know, he also has the song after uh, the Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 15, I believe it is. Um, but here he says in verse 8, um, let's start at verse 7 because it kind of brings you into it. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father and he will show thee, thy elders and they will tell thee. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance. When he separated the sons of Adam, the sons of man, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of of the children of Israel. All right. Now, if you're looking at um, the ESV um, or some other translations, even this version of the King James that I have has a footnote of it. Um, instead of saying the children of Israel at the end, it also says, or some translations say, some older translations, not English translations, say the, the sons of God which is the term used in Job, right? Um, some use that to prove all kind of things about the Old Testament. That's, that's far afield from what I want to discuss tonight. But notice that God, even not just dividing Israel, but in dividing the nations of the world, set boundaries, right? And it's according to the sons of men. So it was according to uh, the, the people themselves, right? So you're not, you don't just have a division over the Lord's people in particular, but you have a division over the whole world. Right? So Deuteronomy 32 shows the division of nations. Numbers 34 shows the division of Israel. And when you're talking about ancient landmarks, 
these are the kind of things that are involved because you have all these different commands uh, that are mentioned throughout uh, the uh, first five books of the Bible and then the prophets even speak about it in, in the realm of uh, thievery uh, but uh, this idea that you would move a boundary right, uh, that was set by your fathers per se God is speaking against that. You know how a lot of some of the proverbs are are more uh, have a not as direct a tone as this one, right? This like some proverbs would be phrased something like "It is not wise to do this." This proverb says, "Do not do it. Right? Remove not. Do not remove. Do not move an ancient boundary." Right? So God is addressing something very directly through Solomon here. Um, I'm going to read something from Bridges and try to open our our minds up a little bit. Uh, He says, All sound expositors warn us from this proverb to reverence, to respect, long-tried and well-established principles and not rashly to innovate upon them. So you see what he's doing is something that... uh, I'm going to read some more in just a second, but but he's expanding it based on the principle that's being addressed. What he's saying is that this is not just about Israel of old having landmarks. Right? This is about respecting what has come before us. Right? Um, and he said, again, uh, to revere, to reverence, to respect long-tried and well-established principles and not rashly to innovate upon them. He says, some scorn the ancient landmarks as relics of bygone days of darkness. You think of how people today oppose the past because patriarchy, because white supremacy, because colonialism, because Christianity, because, I mean, anything, right? Um, Impatient of restraint, he says, they want a wider range of wandering. They find the past and the things that they have inherited as constricting. Now, this is Bridges writing in the 1800s, right? This is not written in 2023. He says, To indulge either their own prurient appetite for novelties or the morbid cravings of others for this unwholesome excitement. Have you ever heard the word prurient before? P-R-U-R-I-E-N-T? It basically means lustful. Um... I had never heard of that word before I read Bridges' commentary, and there was no footnote to it, so I was embarrassed. Uh, he didn't provide a definition. I was like, I, I should know what this word means. So looked it up, stored it in my brain. Right? He's saying that these people, they hate restraint who would move these landmarks, who would reject tradition, reject well-established principles. And he says it's based on a lustful appetite. It's based on morbid cravings, and unwholesome excitement. And he cites 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Timothy 4. I'll read those in just a second. But he says, Endless divisions and dissensions have been the fruit of this deadly evil. Because if God says don't do something, that means to do it is evil. So he's saying people who reject this proverb are living in an evil fashion. He says... The right of individual judgment oversteps its legitimate bounds. And in its licentious exercise, every man 
feels justified to do and think that which is right in his own eyes. That sounds familiar, right? Judges 21. Right? So he's saying that the, the, the mindset of a person who would um, reject this proverbial wisdom of God is one who does what is right in his own eyes. He rejects tradition. He rejects well-established principles. Um, <clears throat> I told you I'd read uh, 2 Timothy 3 uh, and 2 Timothy 4, those verses that he cites. 2 Timothy 3, 7 says this, They are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Hmm. I guess this is a, in every way, shape, and form, this is applicable to what's going on. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, in 2 Timothy 3, 7, it addresses, you know, someone who is just totally unstable, right? totally dissatisfied with no matter what they find, no matter where they live, no matter who their family is. Second, second Timothy, that's 2 Timothy 3, 7. And then uh, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 is the other verses he cites. He says... <coughs> oh, yeah, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Hello. Right, so, so think about someone who has been raised, someone who has been raised in a, a Christian environment, or just a traditional environment in general. Someone who has a family who's been influenced by the Bible Belt, but maybe doesn't even go to church anymore. When someone runs away from that, that's the kind of person that's being described. Someone that just hates where they're from. Right? Um, someone who despises the things that their parents have taught them. Right? Now, assuming that which they've taught them is good. He has a whole section where he's like, of course, right? if we're born into a non-Christian family and we come to know Christ, we have to throw away the traditions that we've inherited that are ungodly. But not all of them are, right? because natural law, natural theology, natural revelation, uh, everybody being made in the image of God, all those things come into play. <coughs> but he cites 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, They'll go beyond the landmarks, is the idea. They'll have itching ears. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Isn't that so often the case for someone who rejects Christian uh, rearing? Like, of course we know that someone who believes the opposite of Christianity is believing fables, believing lies, but when you frame it in Proverbs twenty-two twenty-eight speech, right? Lies, fables are what leads you to despise the inheritance that God gave you, the place that God has placed you. Running away from the inheritance is, is the idea. Now, I'm using inheritance in a non-financial sense, but of course you could probably extend it to that too. But just the place that God has providentially put you. They can do it doctrinally. Right? You can run from one branch of Christianity to another simply because you didn't like mom and dad. They can do it domestically. They don't like where they're from because, of course, it's always better over there. They could do it traditionally. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they could do it based on traditions. Right. This is kind of what you get where people uh, kind of stay in the general realm or live, livelihood of their family, but they say their family gets on their nerves, so they just move just far enough away to establish their own traditions. 
rather than to sanctify the ones that they've inherited. As if something out there is that much better. Improving what you have is one thing, but that's not forsaking the ancient boundaries. But scrapping what has been handed down to you is another. In uh, Melanchthon's commentary, let's see, I think I got it in here somewhere. See, this is as big as it is. You can tell it's not on all of Proverbs. It's just on a few from each chapter. Um, but he's talking about it as it relates to uh, laws, primarily. And uh, there's a guy he cites named Demosthenes. Sam, do you know who that is? Say again? Yeah. Uh, a speech he had against Timocrates describing the Locrians. Anyway, uh, but just you'll, you'll understand why he uses this quote. He says, I would like judges, I would like, comma, judges, comma, to describe for you the example of the Locrians. So he's going to bring up this tradition that this community had. For it will do you no harm to hear an example, especially from one of the city-states regulated by honorable laws. The people there are of the opinion that ancient laws are to be maintained and that the institutions of their fathers are to be fortified and preserved. New laws are not to be established for the sake of selfish desires or for the purpose of wrongdoing. As such, if anyone wishes in this place to propose a new law, he must appear before the court with a noose strapped around his neck. And if the court determines that the law would be honorable and useful, the one proposing the new law gets to depart alive and uninjured. You get what happens if they don't, right? If, however, the proposed law was not pleasing to the people, the one proposing was immediately killed by tightening the noose. As such, no one dared propose new laws. Instead, the old laws were obeyed with utmost care and seriousness. And after many years, only one new law was passed. They passed the law there that if anyone plucked out his neighbor's eye, his own eye would likewise be plucked out. There was no option of punishment by a fine. Now a certain man who had two eyes had an enemy with only one eye, and he threatened to pluck out the eye of the one-eyed man. The one-eyed man, terrified of the prospect, struck up enough courage to propose a new law, namely that any person with two eyes who plucked out the eye of a one-eyed person would be punished by having both of his eyes plucked out. That, they say, is the only new law established for more than 200 years. So just, you know, an ancient example of how serious it is to move the ancient landmarks, to change it, and how even in this pagan society, they understood how important tradition was, and how serious it was to change it. And Xenophon, in his uh, uh, Hellenica, I think is what it is. Uh, Xenophon's a, kind of a, a household name when you start reading older stuff like this, but uh, that's not one of his more well-known works that I know of anyway. Is it? Okay. Gotcha. Uh, but he said this, Xenophon was not far from this truth when he wrote that all changes in government bring about death. And think about that for a moment. It's true. All changes in government bring about death. It's one way or another. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
And he's, again, just getting at the idea, or he's using that to get at the idea that when you mess with ancient landmarks, there's going to be consequences. Right? Different societies have addressed it different ways. Go ahead. Listening to a black man the other night on television talking about the celebration of June. Juneteenth. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and Reparations Day. The Reparations Day. But he was saying how important it was for black history. But here they are talking about their history. But what about the white history they will destroy? Right. It's history. Yeah. Whether it's good or whether it's bad, you don't destroy history. Right, yeah. I mean you, you can't learn from it if you if no. you burn it up. You don't see you don't see them doing away with history over in Europe, do you? Oh yeah, you do. Well, <laughs> They're doing, they're, they're doing the same thing we're doing. They're just a couple steps ahead of us. I get what you're saying, though. They, yeah, we just don't hear about it as much. And, and, and the other thing, when I was over in Spain, in Madrid, and we went to the countryside, they still had the, the stones to break the, mm -hmm. the different areas where they live. And it's something yeah, I mean, that's a whole discussion in itself. The ability of us, even as, you know, general Western uh, folks, to point at what our ancient landmarks are. Right? We're not even allowed to say what they are. No. Right? Today. Yeah. Uh, right. This is, I mean, it's not just a, a side issue, right? Like, this is not just like a casual issue, this is a fifth commandment issue. Right. Where I mean the Westminster Larger Catechism defines, you know, who are our superiors as, you know, who are our fathers and mothers as those who are greater than us in age. Mm -hmm. Right. And that even includes in time, like in general, like those who come before us. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, in in, in the Athanasian Creed, right, it, it talks about how you know, anyone who is, uh, if anyone who is to be of this faith must keep it, meaning with what you have received, you must pass on. Mm -hmm. Right? It must be the same oh, yeah. faith that you have received that you must pass mm -hmm. on. So it's, it is, uh, we are a very, even though we're, you know, modern Protestants have this allergy to the word tradition, you know, we, yeah, like, I remember like a year and a half ago, two years ago, I was at a dinner with a bunch of families and, you know, not to just diss on them, but all the rest of the families that were there were all Baptists. And, uh, you know, two of the wives teach Sunday school at one of the local Baptist churches here. And, uh, not Sunday school, I'm sorry, women's Bible study. Um, and, you know, they were talking about one of the lessons that they were kind of getting to ready to prepare and teach over the, you know, the next couple of days, and uh, they were like, you know, we're, we're just trying to keep away from saying tradition, you know, because we don't want to sound like Roman Catholic, and I'm like, you don't have to veer away from the mm -hmm. term tradition. Yeah. You're, because you're, you know, you have received these ancient landmarks. These are the boundaries of orthodoxy that we are to maintain it's and remain within that is what it is, you know. Yeah, he actually addresses that 
that idea in this verse, uh, or on this verse, he says, Rome, on the other hand, charges us with removing the ancient landmark of unwritten tradition which our fathers have set. We ask, what right did they have to set it up? We do reverence to no unwritten tradition upon the footing of the law and the testimony, Isaiah 8.20, and we rebut the charge of Antichrist and contend upon the broad ground of historic testimony that she has removed the ancient landmarks and substituted her own in their place. That Protestantism, in principle, though not in name, is the old religion, and popery is a comparative novelty. We have not removed the ancient landmarks by bringing men back to the true doctrine because this being delivered by God is the ancient doctrine and the landmarks have subsequently uh, have been subsequently removed by the subtlety of the devil and idolatry put into place of true worship so, so uh, long and short of that is it saying that um, Protestantism resets the boundaries um, return to them returns the boundaries yeah Yep. That our boundaries have been there since the beginning. Right. Rome has attempted to move them. Yeah. Is essentially yeah, they're the ones who moved them or hid them, that kind of thing, and that we've uncovered them. Or... You know, philosoph- philosophically, theologically, those are already all very well and good and uh, superior, actually, to what I'm about to say, but there's even a practicality to this verse is don't remove the ancient boundary marks. Um, one one level that you, you didn't bring up or I might not have heard it is that each of these tribes then set about marks for each family. Uh, different sets or sizes of land and put in boundary marks for that. Well, it, it goes down to simply you know, don't move those ancient boundary marks. Um, being a farmer from a farming community, we had to constantly watch our neighbors because they could encroach on our land and then eventually take it over. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have to be careful of moving those ancient boundary marks. That, mm-hmm. That's that's I mean, just, a reference point, think, no, no point of reference. Think about the just the practice of archaeology in general, right? Where you know you mainly have it in like the Middle East and places places like that now, but these ancient societies or towns or churches or temples or monuments or whatever that are uncovered, right? Um, and all the history opens back up, but before that moment, it was just a plot of ground. Right, that we walked over, and I'm going to get to see it. Yeah, well, there you We're go. We're going to go to Israel. Yeah, there you go. 
November. Don't touch anything. It's cursed. <laughs> Gee, <laughs> at least so. It's funny, you know. I thought this, but I mean, you understand the principle I'm getting at, though, is if we allow things to just be covered up by our neglect, or if we willfully cover them up, like we're trying to have now, like you lose something. But when they are uncovered, it, it's like it returns. It's like it's all there once again, and it's just about looking at it. I mean, that's, you know, a whole other philosophical discussion, but um, it's it's important because, you know, like you had, where is it, Richmond, Virginia, where they took down that statue of um, Robert E. Lee? Robert E. Lee. Yeah. I mean, it was a huge statue, and now it's just a round circle with like a, a dead patch of grass in the middle yeah. that they're trying to grow back but people will remember that that was where Robert E. Lee's statue was and it will make people probably talk more about Robert E. Lee than, than before right because they'll pass by and like why is this weird plot of grass here and, I mean, maybe it won't but uh, it, it's actually really difficult to do this right to remove things in such a way that they're never noticeable again um and I think you could even uh, bring in the idea of nostalgia uh, when you start talking about this. Um, because when we're taken from the place of our ancient landmarks or when we have witnessed someone move them, right, there's a longing in our hearts. Look at changing all the old Gordon. Oh, yeah. Okay. Fort Eisenhower. Fort Eisenhower. I don't have a problem with that really. Oh, the names of the forts. Name the forts. Yeah, because. Fort Bragg, Fort Liberty. Fort Liberty. Fort Liberty. I mean, you know, it's getting forwards. It's ridiculous. Better have Fort Change, Calhoun Express. It doesn't matter how much it costs, Mr. Keith, as long as nobody's in pain. I will say that in general. The people that perpetrate this stuff are in their youth and have no sense of nostalgia, have no sense of the past. Actually, most of the people doing this are old white liberals. Yep. Really? Yes. It's true. Yeah. I mean, that, that they Shame feel on. guilt or they uh, are being manipulated. They grew up in the 60s. Right? It's, it's I mean, just that kind of stuff. That's it's just what it is. Like, did you see, have y'all seen the thing with the sub ship? Yeah. The Titanic thing? Yeah. yeah. They, they didn't want they, old white people to be engineers on it. Yeah. They, they, their CEO had this statement in some interview where he said he intentionally did not involve 50 year old white males because uh, they wanted minorities to get the recognition for a successful thing. So, so, and that's not uh, <laughs> racist. Yeah, right. Of course not. Well, racism made up more or less anyway. So, it's just a term that you use to attack someone else. It, it has very little meaning. Well, we also have to think that it's not just us casting aside our fathers. It's we're robbing our children. And there you go. Generations there you go. Of yep. that inheritance. 
right? Mm -hmm. Of the blessings of knowing who our fathers are, which, you know, kind of getting at that very idea that you're getting at with Lee and, you know, all of trying to erase our history and everything. Like, yeah, I mean, it's uh, a lot of it is, I mean, we, we lie about our fathers. Mm -hmm. and, or even if some of the things that we're saying is we only focus on the things that we perceive as evil about them rather than looking at the virtue that they embodied as well. Right. And so, you know, Anthony Eslin uh, has a quote where he says, you know, like, we slander our fathers and we hug ourselves for doing so, um, and it costs us nothing except the chance to grow lives. Mm -hmm. Right? So we, uh, we're, we're robbing ourselves from the riches of wisdom yeah. when we cast aside our fathers. And it's... It really is just a massive shame. Yeah, no, no sane person treats their children the way that people are treating their ancestors right now. Yeah. Right? With your children, right, with your children, you exalt their virtues and seek to curb their vices. Right? Just because children have vices doesn't mean you throw them out mm -hmm. or abort them or whatever the case may be. And another thing, like you're making the point about not being able to, like you forsake the inheritance that you could give to your children. I, I don't think people take that seriously enough because so many children are being given nothing, right? Because an inheritance is, is going to be given, wh whether we like it or not, because an inheritance involves memory. It involves traditions. It involves religion, more often than not. It normally involves a home, uh, sometimes land, and those kind of things. So when we turn away from that which we have actually received, which has probably culminated or built up over a couple generations, maybe three, maybe four, maybe longer, we have to recreate it in one lifetime to try to give to our children, which is impossible which you just you end up giving them a mess or you give them nothing and they have to create it on their own right? it's just uh, this is I actually brought up the point in my lesson that I did in Sunday school on chronological snobbery really the very point of it's there's no there is a, a connection that we dis, that we don't oftentimes perceive that we oftentimes just overlook where the same society that we live in now, where, where we're casting aside, tearing down these, you know, monuments of our forefathers, and like you brought up, abort, aborting our own children, we have this hatred for our fathers and a hatred for our children. There is because we only perceive ourselves as really that overman. Really, the, the what we are in the now is the greatest it will ever be. Essentially, we mm -hmm. are the. It can only go downhill from here. Yeah, pretty much. Like we we hate our fathers and we hate our children. The now is what's best. The newest, what's newest is truest. Yeah, it's it, it. Things are in a psychotic state, and I don't know how short of this, short of Christ coming and saying that is it. That you can you can push the genie back into this nasty devil into the in, back into the bottle again. Once you've unleashed this stuff, it's, it's, uh, 
It's it's uh I mean obviously sin sin will never be eradicated until he returns, obviously. However, I will say that with the strength of a righteous magistrate, with a godly magistrate, can put that genie back in the bottle. I don't that wicked genie back in his land. I don't have that much faith in. But, I mean, faith in, in the right well, historically, that's the way to turn things around the fastest. Sure. And that has this this has happened in history. Obviously, we do live in unprecedented times in some ways. However, societies have have fallen into spiritual declension throughout history. Whole nations, and they have been revived by the in the name of Christ by godly magistrates. You look at ancient Israel, and you see all these mm. different kings. That you know that it says, and he walked in the in, yeah. you know, in, uh, and David was right oh, in his own eyes, or did he spurn the Lord, right? Yeah. But then you see ultimately a man like Josiah come along, mm-hmm. and then you see the kingdom restored back to godliness. There is there is something to be said about a godly magistrate, a, a king, or a or a, a righteous figure that stands up and ultimately is able to speak on behalf of the people in truth. And acts. And acts, absolutely. And that it does ha- has happened throughout history. And you know, we can't just kind of be black ultimately and and fall into despair and say that can't happen. You mean we can't be dispensational? God <laughs> I mean like God we lose down here. No. <laughs> no. That's what MacArthur said. Flat we out. lose he down said here. That like a month and a half what, ago. What MacArthur said? We lose down here. Like that Christians should not be optimistic about civilization because we lose down here. No. Yeah. In the end. No, we, like, uh, well, you know, spoiler alert, Christ wins down here. Yeah. As, <laughs> as you know, he has Christ foretold. Wins, period. That's right. Christ wins, period. He never loses. Not a moment. I'm trying to find this quote. I've been listening to... Uh, how to be a conservative by Scruton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has this line where he talks about, I forget the phrase around it, but he's basically talking about how a culture is a relationship between the living, the dead, and the unborn. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I don't know that he uses the word culture, but those are the three groups that he focuses on and that. Uh, I'm trying to find it, and I've been listening to it. Well, culture would be the right frame, the right term. Yeah, I mean, it would be the way we understand the term culture. I'm but sure, I've seen. I remember where that. I've seen that. You may have said that in schools, frauds, and prior frames. This is okay. It's from Eben Burke. I just found it. I did a a find on the page. Burke. So he's quoting Edmund Burke, who, if you don't know who that is, he was a writer around the time of the French Revolution, one of the few but very sober people who were alive then. Burke saw society, so not culture, but society, as an association of the dead, the living, and the unborn. Its binding principle is not contract, but something more akin to love. Society is a shared inheritance. There's the word. For the sake of which we learn to circumscribe our demands to see our own place in things as part of a continuous chain of giving and receiving, and to recognize that the good things we inherit are not ours to spoil. That's all up in Proverbs twenty-two, twenty-eight, And that's Roger Scruton 
how to be a conservative. We're trying to tear that down by not teaching our history. Correct. Yeah. All kind of ways, for sure. As, as fact, not as opinion. Yeah. And it also kind of reminds me of Chesterton quote where he talks about what his definition of tradition is, where he says that tradition is democracy throughout the ages. Mm-hmm. Where I've actually quoted that before in here. How men how it's not a vote by I mean it's not they're they're not casting their vote by ballot but by tombstones. Yeah. And you can't like how you can't get away from democracy. Yeah. In some sense. It wasn't actually an argument for democracy. No, even but, though he does have that elsewhere in, yeah. in that same book. Yeah. Alright. Um you brought out ten verse ten. Yeah, ten and eleven. Yeah, I was just wondering about twenty three ten. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's in the next chapter, but I don't know if you want to go consider that one in light of anything we've talked about. Yeah, we can. Um, do not enter. Mine says, "Do not remove the ancient landmark, nor enter the fields of the fathers." Mm-hmm. Now. We know what the we've been discussing, removing the ancient landmark and whatever the principles, yeah. doctrines, traditions, whatever. I would guess. It, so, if you enter the field of of a fatherless person, they they don't have any kind of history in their family. They have nothing to go by. Well, it would it would more be the the person who is most vulnerable. Because they don't have a father, right? They are unable to do anything to reset the boundary. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's taking a more. Uh, let's say that the uh, usage of the verse in twenty two twenty eight focuses more on our relationship to our superiors, those who have gone before us. Though by extension, it's connected to all that we said. But then in chapter twenty three, verse ten and eleven, it's more connected to our inferiors. Right where he fleshes it out, like again, like because when you move a, a boundary, um, it's not like you're moving the boundary into the ocean, right? Though there obviously is times when that happens, um, but you're moving a boundary and taking from someone else is the implication. So, in in verse 28 of 22, it's your dad has done this, your parents have done this, whoever, your fathers, don't change it. It's there for a reason. Verse twenty or chapter twenty three, verse ten and eleven is, don't change it, because when you do, you cross over into someone else's territory, and that person may be fatherless, and they may be vulnerable and unable to defend themselves. Because the the idea of the fatherless, uh, throughout the Old Testament, especially, is that they are defended by God. Uh, especially within the covenant community. That's why you get into verse 11, for their Redeemer is mighty, and he shall plead their cause with thee. So you make yourself an enemy of God when you don't uphold the boundaries of those who are uh, fatherless. So, obviously, someone who is wicked, who sees a very vulnerable person next to them, who can't do anything, if you slide the boundary marker over half an acre, 
right? They're just living off of granddaddy's land. Granddaddy and daddy died in the war. It's just a little old young gal, right? That's the idea here. Right? Don't do that to her. Don't well, do that to him. I mean, whoever it may be. The principle that I've thought of with reading this over many years is that, that uh, stay out of where you don't belong. Yeah. That, you know, just stay out of where you don't belong. Remember my father. Don't go into the neighbor's property. Mm-hmm. No, don't. Just don't. It's their property. It's not yours. You don't belong over there hunting, fishing, trapping. That's theirs. If you want to go over there, go talk to the landowner or the neighbor. If it's okay with him, it's okay with me. But you don't belong there. Mm-hmm. And philosophically, we can look at that as stay out of places you don't belong. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, the, the world is my village, though, Mr. Keith. Well, keep the business to yourself. Keep other people's business to yourself. That just that idea, though, assumes a world that we no longer live in. <laughs> I mean, it, you hear that yeah. argument all the time. That, um, we're, we're much too public. That each of us is much too public. You know, state lines, nation, the nation, uh, nation boundary lines are imaginary, mm-hmm. or that they're made up constructs, man-made constructs, right? Like, as is that they're not a thing, that, and that's that's really a large point of this as well. Where, you know, like, don't remove the boundary lines. There's a, there are places where, you know, it's boundary marks are, are in a sense sacred, right? They they define the people that live in within those boundaries. Mm-hmm. And so whenever you move over you don't belong, you're encroaching upon uh, and, and you're going into a place where you don't it, it's not your people. Right. It's not yours that you're mm-hmm. that you're taking. You don't you have not inherited it. Yeah, exactly. You know, whether you you know of course we buy a land but uh, it's still an inheritance, a, a tradition. Living in America is an inheritance. You know, whether you're here um, by birth or by immigration, you know it's an inheritance. People have gone before you. I think you're. To your point, though, I I, I didn't even stop to consider the fact that, like you say, there's a. Uh, a, the word fatherless is really, it's it's all over the place in the Bible, isn't it? Mm-hmm. About the fatherless mm-hmm. there. The, you're kind of like the meat, the downtrodden, the, mm-hmm. the, they yeah. can't fend for themselves. The weak, the helpless. So, so, you, so you're encroaching on somebody else. You're going to, they, they, they're they not going to be able to even defend themselves against mm-hmm. what your, 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 what you think is your arrogant approach to life or, you know, your selfish approach. They're not even going to be able to think for themselves. Isn't that the epitome of a coward? Yeah. 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 Um, Pick on someone who can't defend themselves. Those, there was a few uh, proverbs back. Um, verse 22 of chapter 22. 
Rob not the poor because he is poor. Neither oppress the afflicted in the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause. And spoil the soul of those the soul of those that spoiled them. I mean that's almost a mirror image of ten and eleven from twenty three. <clears throat> so Eighth Commandment Thou shalt not steal. Alright, so uh Do y'all want to cover in our remaining time verse 29 or verses 1 to 3? Whichever one you don't pick, we'll come back to next time. Do verse 29. All right. It says, uh, Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men, insignificant men. He shall stand before mighty men. He shall not stand before insignificant men. Is the idea here because he's diligent in his business? Um, so, first of all, uh, other translations say a man who is skilled in his work, uh, a man who excels in his work, skillful. All those ideas are there. Um, so we're talking about a man who is good at his job, right? a man who does his job well. And evidently the Hebrew is, is ambiguous enough to refer to both his manner and his ability. Right? So diligent is more about manner, but skillfulness is more about ability. I mean, it, it seems to be ambiguous enough for... For both, he works hard and he works well. Uh, but notice that this quality about this man it it brings a certain blessedness, right? Because of the way he works, he is an exalted man. Is the idea that's that's gotten at here, and this doesn't have to be someone who is known by a bunch of people. He's going to be exalted even by few. He just will. But we could see the the great uh, expansion that, that kind of God is getting at in verse 29, that this man who works hard, he will stand before kings. He's going to stand before mighty men. means that he's going to be recognized. It's as if the Lord, because um, you know how the Lord delights in good work. The Lord delights in diligence. The Lord delights in talent. He gives the man ability to do both. And it's as if the Lord bends earth or pushes earth up to heaven to cause this man to be treated the way that he ought to be treated because of the quality of his work. Right? It's as if God fulfills in some small way the Lord's prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we know, Bridges highlights this, that one day when we stand before the Lord, we'll be told, well done, good and faithful servant, if we've finished our race well. But this is a man who's being recognized for the betterment of everyone, right? The king is blessed by this man being in his presence. Uh, there was a guy, um, Joel Salatin. He 
invented the, the chicken truck, right? Well, chicken tractor. Yeah. Chicken tractor. I always call it chicken he truck. Invent, he invented a specific type. Yeah. So he's a uh, big in the homesteading, like self-sufficiency and farming and all that stuff. And he is so skilled at it and gained such a reputation for it that the royal family flew him to London for afternoon tea and then flew him home just so he could talk to them about his work. I think he lives in Virginia or North Carolina or something like that. Virginia. Virginia? Okay. But, you know, modern day example of that. And he's a Christian. But this idea that talented men are very often exalted to places where they represent many is the idea that's being carried here. Uh, Bridges brings out uh, Joseph, right? Joseph, one man among many who stood with Pharaoh, was honored by Pharaoh. Um, Nehemiah, Daniel, right? All were diligent in their business and did so before kings. Um, he says, uh, he brings up Eliezer as well in Genesis 24. But he says this, um, kind of getting at something I mentioned earlier. He says, nobleness of condition, meaning how good your, your life is or, or whatever the case may be. Nobleness of condition is not as essential as a school for nobleness of character. So nobleness of character, being diligent in your work, is greater than having a nobleness of condition. He says, It is delightful to think that humble life may be just as rich in moral grace and moral grandeur as the loftier places in society. That as true a dignity of principle may be earned by him who in homeliest drudgery plies his conscientious task as by him who stands entrusted with the fortunes of an empire. Notice it says that he will stand before kings, not kings will stand before him. He's going to be elevated to this highest level of society to show that... Christ. Right? Right? Christ. He he stood before the kings for for Mm -hmm. Pontius Pilate, for all these people, because... Of his his work, yeah. His his work. Was, that's right. Was notable, and that's what you, many times today you're going to stand, not because you did something great in the eyes, but you 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 embarrassed, or mm-hmm. you you brought to light a moral or a uh, uh, condition. Mm-hmm. You, you've been very diligent and very logical and very. Uh, straightforward about a certain thing, so you're going to be brought before kings, and yeah. say, "What do you mean? What do you mean about this? You know, what gives you the right to say this?" You know? Well, I mean, you know how Jesus warned the apostles that they would stand Absolutely. before men right. to bear witness to Him Absolutely. and not not to worry about what they'd say, because it would be given to them in that time. Um, he brings up, he says, when a man serves the Lord in fervency of spirit thriftfully occupying his own talent for the day of reckoning, meaning preparing for the last day, serving the Lord well. Not only the mean man, but the mighty man of the world will be too low for him. This man that is serving the Lord diligently, doing his labors with honor and glory and and justice and all those things that 
Not only will the lowly man not be high enough for him, but the mighty man of the world will not be high enough for him, because he will stand before the King of Kings with an unspeakable honor, with unclouded acceptance, where the Lord Jesus will declare, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Um, how that declaration from Christ, as it were, it's almost like it, it, it is experienced in a small way when Christians are a part of a real reflection of this verse. Right? That you're already hearing through earthly kings, that you're already hearing from exalted men in this life, mm-hmm. a foretaste of what you will hear from the Lord Jesus in the next. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, yeah, I think that, that, I mean, this really speaks to Christian's doctrine of vocation, mm-hmm. how we can understand the fact that we all every, even rewarded heavenly, and even our spiritual state as Christians is heavily reflected in how we go about our vocation. Um, like if you meet somebody in the workplace and they say they're a Christian, and yet they're just a complete dirtbag, like they don't do their job well, they, they complain about the job constantly. They don't even do the job even. Like, do you actually trust their profession at that point? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I mean, like, Luther has that famous quote of him saying, you know, like, uh, he called, said, my workbench is a, is a, an altar or something like that, right? Where, you know, we, we kind of, we put our understanding of our Christian faith even into the things that we do in our day-to-day lives and our work. Um, and, you know, Paul in Colossians 3, you know, he talks about being putting off the old man and putting on the new, and then immediately goes into that exposition about, you know, fathers, uh, husbands and wives, and then, uh, you know, fathers to their children, and then masters to their slaves, and slaves to their masters. It's, it's going from you, you're cha- you go from one state to another, and now you are cha- you have a whole new grammar, essentially, a whole mm-hmm. new. Uh, outlook on life and so it, it affects how you go about who you are as a father who you are as a husband who mm-hmm. you are as an employee uh, and it, you know it's a direct connection that he eventually makes in this argument that he has at the end of Colossians there and um, you know it's just the fact that we oftentimes do take that whole thing of you know I'm, they're disconnected or my Christian life and my work life are disconnected. This kind of pietist kind of mentality of, or you know, where we separate the two. Church is over here. Mm-hmm. Common life is over here. Cultic common. You know, we kind of have this skewed idea of the two kingdoms, but really, they're both together. They're both joined into one reality and affect one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're both under. The reign of Christ in different ways, but they both are. Well, Daniel sure did it, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Daniel, was, Daniel was a great example of somebody who stood before, before right. the king based on his sticking to it things. Did well in his vocation. You know, was known by the king as being a hard worker, being well well-versed in his job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been experienced. Yeah. Yep, you mentioned that. him. If you're 
if you're diligent. In your, I mean, if you're, you know, if you, you automatically rise up and you, and you get noticed by people. I mean, you, you, you're, you're, if you're di diligent. I mean, I'm saying you can be noticed by people by doing the wrong things mm -hmm. because you're political or you're, you're really conniving. I'm saying more from the standpoint that you're, you know, a very good performer or you're, you know, you make really good contributions, insight things, that gets noticed. Mm -hmm. you know, in, yeah. In, in, in cases. I mentioned uh, appetites before and how they're connected to all the way through chapter 3, or 23, verse 1 to 3, but I think that you could also, even just focusing on verse 28 and 29, just address the the idea of contentment right that being appreciative of the landmarks the boundaries within which god has placed you reflects a certain level of contentment um trust right um this is why you know radicals have been so dangerous throughout history because you, you never know what they're going to do. They're, they are so... David Platt. <laughs> not David Platt. <laughs> but yes, David Platt. But then, but, then, but then look at some of the fantastic discoveries and all the, you know, Galileo, Copernicus, and, and uh, the mathematician. They, break, they broke the boundaries by being radical. You know, well, yeah, their, I mean, it's, it's know, not a... It's not a uh, I mean, the proverb doesn't mean don't branch out. Right. Um, it, war it warns against a certain type of it where you would degrade uh, what you have inherited. Now, if somebody discovers truth, it's not because they rejected truth. It's because they expanded upon it. So they weren't moving, stepping around or whatever, the ancient boundaries, right? They were, they were capitalizing on it. But... Um, but then the, to address the worker thing, right? The, the diligence in 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 whatever your vocation is. It, that, that that's one of the hardest things to me about living today is contentment. Um, contentment with your home. Contentment with your. Uh, I mean, wherever you're serving as a job, your family, right? Just anything like that, where. Because we know so much, we see so much, we have so many opportunities. Contentment is one of the first virtues that is attacked on a daily basis, I would say, in people's hearts. We wake up grumbling. Right? And then we're told that the only way to satisfy ourselves is to give in to those grumbles. Right? Um, but someone who is content in the job that God has placed them and works at it diligently, that's, that's the blessed man who's going to stand before, before kings. Great game. Yeah. Alright, any final thoughts?